Well, we do begin a new series this week on the book of Jonah, just four short weeks, enough to take us through into the Christmas season. So uh, let's uh, pray to God now that he might give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but your words never fail to accomplish the purpose for which you send them. And so, Lord, may your word do its work in each of our hearts here today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's no doubt to me that the story of Jonah is one of the greatest stories in the world. Even people who've never read the Bible have heard about Jonah. And part of that is because it's just one of the great ripping yarns of the Bible, isn't it? You know, a guy running away from God is saved from a storm by being swallowed by a giant fish. Uh, And then he finally uh, does what God wanted him to do in the first place. It's such a a great story. It's it's one of those stories you really only have to hear once and then you kind of remember it forever. It's kind of one of those stories I remember from my childhood that's really deeply entrenched in in my own memory. Uh, But a lot of people presume that it's just that, a story, Uh, that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's belongs in the realm of fairy tales and fables and tall stories told down at the pub after one too many drinks. Anything but history. And yet history is what it is. Uh, And that mistake is made even by people who ought to know better, uh, academics and theologians and even preachers. Many people give lots of reasons why Jonah ought not to be taken too literally. Uh, Some find the thing about the storm being calmed a a little far-fetched. There's arguments about whether or not the great city of Nineveh could have really been properly visited in three days, as chapter 3, verse 3 suggests. But most people, the thing they find hardest to swallow, pardon the pun, uh, is, of course, the whole thing about Jonah being gobbled up by a giant fish and surviving inside its stomach for three days. And so, as one commentator suggests, perhaps Jonah recovered from his ordeal at sea by staying at a hotel for three days called the giant fish. But these sorts of suggestions, they come from people who forget how powerful God is and that this is his world. Because once you have accepted that our God is the God who created the universe and raised Jesus Christ from the dead, accepting that the story of Jonah happened in history is but a small thing. And what's more, there's every reason to believe that this is how Jonah ought to be read. When we hear in 1 verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, we're hearing about someone who already we've heard about in the New Testament, or sorry, in the Old Testament, I should say. In 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25, we read about the ministry of Jonah, son of Amittai, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Uh, That puts Jonah in the early kind of 8th century BC, Jeroboam II ruled between 793 BC and 753 BC. And at this time, the great superpower of the day was the nation of Assyria. And what's the capital of Assyria? Nineveh. And so there's nothing fishy about this story at all, except for the, the fish bit, of course. This tale is history. People make a mistake when they assume that it's merely just part of a a morality tale. But people also make a mistake, it seems to me, if they imagine that this is a story about a guy and a fish. Because this historical story, like most of the historical stories of the Bible, is really a story about God. And I hope that's the thing that will become most apparent to you over the next four weeks. 
And so let's begin with Jonah chapter 1, because in Jonah 1, there are three things that God sends, uh, and they frame the story very nicely. First of all, God sends his word in verses 1 to 3. Then God sends the storm in verses 4 to 15. And then God sends not just the fish, but actually his mercy in verses 16 and 17. And so let's take each one of those things in turn. There's an outline that you got in there. And look, I promise to ease up on the puns, but it is Jonah, so you had to let me have a few. Firstly then, the Lord sends his word. Verse 2 sees Jonah being commanded to go by God. And what's surprising here is who Jonah is told that he must go to. And normally when a prophet of God is is sent out and the word of the Lord comes to them, uh, the people we expect them to go to are the Jewish people, the, the Israelites, those who are chosen by God. Presumably that has been Jonah's ministry so far. But this time when the Lord sends his word, Jonah is to take it to Nineveh. Uh, He's being told to leave the land of Israel, travel to a foreign country and speak to to foreigners. And the sorts of foreigners that Jonah feared or perhaps even considered his enemies. It was the very capital of the great enemy of the Jewish people. Either way, Jonah doesn't like the idea very much. So God says go and he goes all right, but he goes in the complete opposite direction. Verse 3 says he heads straight for the Israelite port of Joppa and he boarded a ship headed for Tarshish, which is probably in Spain, nowhere near Nineveh, where God wanted him to go. Now, at this point, we can only speculate as to what's going on inside Jonah's head as he does this. Perhaps he's simply motivated by fear. Uh, Perhaps he's just being downright disobedience. Uh, Perhaps this is some sort of protest from Jonah. But whatever the cause is, at the end of verse 3, we know what Jonah is doing. He's fleeing from God. He's running away from God. And that's how Jonah responds when God sent his word to Jonah. Now, how will God respond to Jonah's response? Well, that's when God sends the next thing. He sends his storm in verse 4. And it's a pretty violent one. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Everything that God does in Jonah chapter 1 is is supersized. There is a a great huge wind in verse 4 and there is a great huge fish in verse 17. In fact, it's the same word in the original Hebrew. And the implication being that the word of God that is being sent to Nineveh is also great, huge. Although we'll have to wait to chapter 3 to find out if that's true. But notice the reaction of the sailors to the storm that God sends. and, And then the reaction of Jonah, because the two reactions, they couldn't be more different. Verse 5 tells us that the sailors were afraid, and so they prayed to their gods for help. And they started throwing the cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. Uh, Their reaction is the sensible terror of seasoned sailors. But Jonah is apathetic, to say the least. The last thing on his mind is prayer. He's fast asleep below deck. And so the ship's captain actually goes down to wake Jonah up and to try and get on him to call on his God to show them mercy. Uh, Meanwhile, the sailors cast lots to try and determine who's brought this calamity upon them. Please don't ask me how in the world the sailors managed to cast lots in a huge storm, but they did. And the lot falls on Jonah. And so Jonah emerges from below deck, rumming sleep from his eyes, beginning to take everything in and what's going on. And the sailors immediately begin to pepper him with questions in verse 8. 
Uh, they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And it's then in verse 9 that Jonah confesses. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. And that's a staggering way of describing God, isn't it? The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. And it's now that we begin to see just how foolish Jonah is. You know, what's he done? He's thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll run away from the God of all creation, the God of the land and the God of the sea by doing what? Getting on a boat. This is idiocy. And you can almost hear the sailors think, well, you can almost imagine what they're thinking in verse 10. You know, you did what? You, you tried to run away from your God, the God of the sea, by getting on a boat, by getting on our boat? Are you insane? Uh, verse 10 actually tells us that they already knew that he, that he was running away from the Lord. Uh, and that phrase there, the Lord, in all kind of capital letters, it's a, behind that, that name there is, of course, the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh. And for all the sailors knew, Jonah was running away from a bloke called Yahweh. Maybe he owed him money or something like that. But now Jonah reveals that this Yahweh that he's fleeing from is, in fact, the Lord, his God. That's the one he's running away from. Now, this is a major revelation. It shows us Jonah's heart. Jonah knows who God is. Jonah isn't ignorant. Jonah knows that God could follow him wherever he goes, on land or by sea. But he tries to run away anyway. He's acting completely inconsistently with what he knows to be true. But of course, Jonah's not the only one to fall into that trap, is he? At this point in all his pig-headed stupidity, Jonah feels very human to me and very relatable. I see a lot of Jonah in me. How often do I know exactly what God wants of me? And yet I don't do it. And I pretend that somehow I can run away from God in my petty rebellion. I imagine that perhaps God will, will not notice what I have done, or, or maybe he will forget. Or maybe if I just kind of stick my fingers in my ears and close my eyes, everything will be okay. Jonah is as foolish as he is relatable. Now, at this point in the story, in verse 11, the storm is getting worse. The sailors, they don't know what to do, and so they ask Jonah whether he has any ideas. And Jonah says that they should do with him what they did with the cargo and throw him overboard. But notice in verse 12, Jonah doesn't suggest that somehow he repent of his sins. You know, Jonah doesn't say to the sailors, I tell you what, I'll get down on my hands and knees like you did, like you prayed to your gods, and I'll pray to my God and ask him to forgive me for running away from him. And perhaps he'll be merciful and perhaps he'll calm the storm. No, Jonah doesn't suggest that. It seems that Jonah is either too scared or too angry or too whatever that he would rather risk his life in the water than apologise to God. Now, I suspect that, or I, if you know, I was one of the sailors, I'd be probably the first to chuck Jonah overboard at this point, but actually they don't. Um, even though he's caused them so much trouble, in verse 13, the first thing they try and do at this point is try and row back to safety. 
but it's all in vain. God's storm is stronger than their rowing. So in the end, they very reluctantly do as Jonah has suggested, and not before praying to Jonah's God. Uh, the prayer they pray there in verse 14 is almost a kind of a, a, a wiping their hands of the whole situation. Uh, they're effectively saying to God, you know, we, we don't know whether this man, Jonah, is guilty or innocent, which is a very generous assumption when Jonah's already admitted that he's guilty. Uh, but we've done all we can and it really seems like you've left us with no choice, which is true. God hasn't left them with any choice. And so they do throw Jonah overboard. But it is fascinating. I can't help but feel that the pagan sailors are showing more nobility and kindness to this wayward prophet of God than he deserves. At the very start of the chapter, these uh, pagan sailors, they prayed to all of their gods, and now here right at the end of the chapter, they're all praying together to one God, to Jonah's God, the one true God. And they're even calling him by name. Twice in verse 14, they call him by the name Yahweh which was the name that only those who were Jewish called him. And in verse 16, it even describes that the sacrifices they made, they made to Yahweh. Something has happened in the lives of these sailors. Jonah has run away from God. But in this crisis, these sailors have run towards God. They have come to know something of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And they know enough to fear him. Back in verse 5, the sailors, they greatly feared the storm. But in in verse 10, they're they're terrified of being on the same boat as Jonah. But here, right at the end in verse 16, who is it that they fear? Well, it's the Lord they fear. It's the Lord they make sacrifices to and offer vows to. They're fearful, but they're fearful in a whole new way. And in some ways, that's one of the main things, I think, to notice about this story. Jonah and the fish in verse 17 might be one of the most memorable things about this story, but perhaps it ought not to be. Perhaps the most memorable thing about this story ought to be the mercy that God shows in both verse 16 and 17. I mean, isn't that interesting? At the start of the chapter, God's word is sent out to the pagan city of Nineveh. And although God's word has not reached Nineveh yet... God's word has reached these sailors and it has dramatically changed them. And these sailors, they're not Israelites, but at the end of the chapter, these Gentile sailors are worshipping God the way that the Israelites did on their very best of days. It's interesting, when Jonah said that in verse 9, he worshipped the Lord, the word there for worship um, is actually the same as the word for fear. In verse 16, Jonah literally said, I fear the Lord. And yet it's hard to see much evidence for this in the chapter. But by the end of the chapter, these pagan sailors, they fear God more humbly than even Jonah, the Israelite prophet, does. And then, of course, the chapter ends in verse 17 with a final little postscript about Jonah. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord who sent Jonah to Nineveh and then sent the storm to to rein in his runaway prophet is also the same Lord who sends Jonah a rescuer. Not in the form of a hotel called the fish, but in the form of an actual fish 
a huge fish that swallows Jonah out of the sea. For all of Jonah's stubbornness and rebelliousness and stupidity, for all that Jonah is a contrast to the, to the sailors, uh, for all that Jonah seems to, to fear nothing, and he never even prays at any point in chapter 1. Uh, instead, he would prefer to be thrown into the sea and to risk the storm. And yet for all of that, God is merciful to Jonah, just as he's been merciful to the sailors as well. And I think that's what these last two verses have in common. They are about the mercy of God. God sends his mercy to the sailors by revealing himself to them. And he sent his mercy to Jonah by rescuing him from the sea. And that's that mercy of God that I think is most applicable to us here in Jonah 1. I don't want to suggest ever that we should read Jonah 1 as a, a textbook of uh, what you ought to do if you find yourself caught at sea in a storm. You know, please don't throw yourself over the side of the boat on the way to Rotnest, no matter how rough the sea gets. And nor do I want us to read it metaphorically and kind of, I don't want to ask you, you know, what are the storms of life that uh, God is, is calling you back to him through? I don't want to ask that question. But what I do want to say is that what we do have in Jonah 1 is a contrast and it's very obvious which way is the better way. Jonah resists the will of God, but the sailors have a proper fear of him. This chapter describes for us a very low spiritual moment in the life of God's prophet. And for whatever reason, Jonah is running away from God. It's certainly the reason is not ignorance. God's command came to him with crystal clarity. This problem can't have been that he did not understand what God said or what God wanted him to do. Uh, and we know that Jonah, from verse 9, he knows God well. There is no problem in Jonah's theology. Uh, Jonah knows his God and he knows what his God wants. He just doesn't do it. And as I said, this makes Jonah very relatable. He reminds me of me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's willing to admit it. Who of us could say that there's never been a time in our life where we've clearly known what God wants of us, but we've done something very different? Who of us could say that there's never been a time when we've known who God really is, but we've treated him as if he was someone far less important? And who of us could say that there's never been in a time in our life where we've run away from God? and run away from his loving rule over our life. We, like Jonah, are prone to resist the will of God, prone to run away from God, when instead we ought to fear God like the sailors did. We are prone to be hearers of God's word and yet not doers, as James chapter 1, verse 22 warns. And so when the scriptures urge us to praise God, we ought to not just hear that, but lift up our hearts and declare all that he is worth. And when the scriptures urge us to be joyful, we ought to not just hear that, but stop making ourselves pitying excuses and choose to find our happiness in him. And when the scriptures urge us to turn away from greed, 
We ought not just to hear that, but actually pray that God would deliver us from our love of money and of things and our exhausting pursuit of them and lead us to a life that values people more than possessions and God's riches more than the riches of this world. And when the scriptures urge us to flee from from sexual immorality and lust, we ought not just to hear that, but to train our minds to think differently. We ought to stop placing ourselves in the path of temptation. And when the scriptures urge us to forgive, we ought to not just hear that, but to take the grudge that we hold against the other and to hurl it as far away from us as we can. Just as the Lord God has taken our sins, which he held against us, and hurled them as far as the east is from the west. I could keep going. But we must not be like Jonah who heard, but did not obey. Instead, we must be like the sailors who fearfully repent of that kind of foolishness and pray that God would help them to be and to hear and to do. But of course, if all that Jonah 1 asks of us is that we simply put more effort into our Christian lives, then we'll quickly tire of that. You know, just do better. Uh, Just do better. That is never the application of a Christian sermon. It is never the main message of the gospel of grace and forgiveness that begins at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even more important than uh, the the lesson of learning obedience uh, is, is that we ought to learn the lesson of of knowing and understanding the God that we are responding to. Jonah 1 is an invitation to know God and to know him better because it's that knowledge of God that will help us to fear him and respond to him as we should. It's easy to miss this, I think, sometimes. Our response to God is exactly that. It is a response. It is a reaction to who he is and what he has done. And it's our knowledge of those things that fuel us to fear him and to respond rightly to him. And so what does this chapter tell us about God? Well, it tells us about his lordship. God sent his word, God sent his storm, and God even sends the the, the fish that swallowed Jonah. God governed the casting of lots by the pagan sailors. It was God's strength that proved greater than the, the muscles of those who were rowing. And it was that same strength that calmed the storm the moment that Jonah was thrown overboard. The fingerprints of God's sovereignty there, they're all over this story. He is who Jonah confessed him to be. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this means that resisting him is not only foolish, it's futile. You can try resisting God, but at the end of the day, you'll always be like those sailors who rowed with all their might and yet never moved an inch. As Martin Luther once famously wrote, not only the ship, but the whole world became too small for Jonah. There was nowhere, there was no nook or corner in all of creation where he might crawl to escape from God. And what we see of God here is exactly what the disciples discovered, the disciples of Jesus discovered, when they too found themselves in a similar situation to those sailors hundreds of years later. We read about it in Mark chapter 4, didn't we? 
they too genuinely feared for their lives despite being experienced sailors. Uh, and yet it was the Lord Jesus who was in the boat with them. He was the one who was sleeping. And when he went and spoke to the storm, the sea became instantly calm. And the disciples found that their earlier fear was swept away in a wave of new fear. Fear of the one who could do such a thing as stop the wind and the waves with but a single word. And if you're here today, if you're someone who's still thinking about the Christian faith, just dipping your toe into the water, so to speak, then you need to know that the Lord of Jonah 1 is the Lord of Mark 4. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, the one who made the sea and the dry land. And when you get to know him, you will be terrified. His power and his authority are astonishing. But what Jesus' disciples learned is what Jonah 1 reminds us of. That the God who is the Lord does not exercise his immense power with oppression, but with compassion. The one who is terrifyingly Lord is also wonderfully merciful. And that tempers and it qualifies our fear of him. It means we don't fear our God like we might fear a tyrant, one who uses his great power and wields it to hurt us. Instead, we fear him perhaps as a, a child learns to fear their father when they've disappointed him. I fear him as one that they might shrink back from because they are afraid of his disappointment, but yet the, the love the father has for them will never be in question. And in Jonah 1, we see God's lordship always side by side with his mercy. His mercy to Jonah when God sends the fish to rescue him from the sea. And in that moment, we are reminded that God is merciful even to sinners, even to those who flee from him, even to those who disobey his will and, and resist him. God is merciful even to the worst kind of sinners like Jonah, like us. And that it's ultimately true because the one who calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4 is the same one who went willingly to a hill outside of Jerusalem and laid down his life for us so that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and so that the mercy of God like a a wave in a storm might come crashing over our worlds and even into our lives, a torrent of, of cleansing love and healing grace. How wonderful is it to know that sins are forgiven? How wonderful is it to know that as we struggle along in the Christian life, as we continue to disappoint God, as we continue to run away from him, Jesus continues to run towards us, to embrace us and bring us home. And what a surprise to see that mercy extend to the sailors as well. God looks down on these Gentiles worshipping their various gods and he loves them too. And he reveals himself to them as well. 
They were miles from God at the start. They were ignorant of his lordship. They had no hope of enjoying the blessings of his mercy. But by the end, they are worshipping like Israelites on their very best of days. Those who were excluded are suddenly included in both the mercy and the lordship of God. It makes you wonder what might happen when the word of God finally does reach Nineveh. And it makes you wonder what might happen when the word of God reaches people in our families and in our neighbourhoods, our workmates, or what it might do when it reaches all the nations of the earth. And we are the evidence of what will happen, aren't we? Because we here, in this room now, we are in the majority, we are Gentiles, we are, are not Jewish. We were those who were miles from God at the start, ignorant of his lordship, having no hope of enjoying the blessings of his mercy. We were those who were by birth excluded, and yet now suddenly we are both included by the mercy of God and the lordship of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who once upon a time would have had no chance of of even knowing the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now Jesus Christ has flung open the doors of God's kingdom wide enough that anyone might come in. We who were once far away are now brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on that hill outside Jerusalem. We are exactly the evidence of what happens when the word of God reaches people. Oh, that it might reach our world today. See, in the end, Jonah 1 is about responding rightly to God. But it's more about knowing the one that we need to respond rightly to. Jonah 1 is about fearing God. But it's more about knowing that the one that we ought to fear is a God of mercy. And Jonah 1 is about the foolishness of running away from God, but not because you can't ever escape him, even though that is true, but because there isn't any reason to want to escape him. When we resist God's will, we disappoint him, that's true. But even more tellingly, we rob ourselves. Running away from God is foolish because the further we run from him, the further away we are from all we desperately need and crave and all that he freely offers us in his son. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his great power and mercy for his compassionate reign of our worlds and of us. We thank you for his kindness, for the way that he has thrown open the doors of your kingdom to even Gentiles like us, and we are welcomed in. We thank you for his death on the cross and for the mercy that flows to us as you forgive our sins. Father, we pray that you would write these things on our hearts. That it would seem 
foolish to us to ever resist your will and run away from you. And instead, Lord, may we run towards you and gladly obey you. Not just hearing your word, Lord, but wanting to do it as it says. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.